Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast that gives you the tools you need to preach with confidence from the Hebrew Bible. I'm Dr. Rachel Wren, Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at Trinity Lutheran Seminary. And I'm Tim McNinch, a PhD candidate at Emory University. The first reading for October 24th, 2021, includes two excerpts from Job 42, that's verses 1 through 6 and 10 through 17. And this is, in fact, the very first time that we've talked about the book of Job on first reading. It's so wild. I kind of can't believe it. Yeah, I know. I know. So uh, we pulled in the big guns, and to help us out today, we are so excited to welcome an expert on the book of Job, Dr. Will Kynes. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, I used Dr. Kynes' work uh, in my dissertation, so I'm really excited to have him here. For those of you listeners who might not be familiar, Dr. Kynes is an associate professor of biblical studies at Samford University. His research focuses on wisdom and suffering in the Hebrew Bible, viewed from the various perspectives of biblical texts and their readers. Dr. Kynes is currently working on a book about how different cultures have found hope in the biblical tradition of wrestling with God, which sounds fantastic. He also just started a podcast. It's called The Two Testaments, and it sounds awesome. Each season, they walk through an Old Testament book and a New Testament book, chunk by chunk, passage by passage, and interview leading biblical scholars as they go through. That's thetwotestaments.com, and it can also be found wherever you listen to podcasts. So, Dr. Kynes, welcome to First Reading. Hey, thank you both for having me. I'm really looking forward to talking with you about this great passage. So one of the first questions that we typically ask our guests is, how did you come into biblical studies? What brought you here? So I sometimes tell people that um, what I'm really into is the book of Job. And if the author of Job was a philosopher, then I'd be studying philosophy. If it was in the New Testament, I'd be a a New Testament scholar. If he was, you know, an early patristic scholar, that's what I'd be doing. So Hmm. I really came to it through my passion for this particular book. Is, Is this fascination with Job something that you've always had or was there a particular moment where it kind of grabbed you? Uh, there was a particular moment. So um, uh, my colleague on the podcast that you mentioned, thanks for the plug, by the way. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he, he jokes with me that I have a kind of like Paul on the road to Damascus moment <laughs> with the book of Job. Uh, so after I graduated from college, I moved to Nairobi, Kenya, and I was doing some work there in a church, but also working with children who lived on the streets. Uh, and I got really, really sick. Uh, and it was, I was, it was so bad that I just couldn't even leave the apartment. And so I had this one week where I was completely alone for a week and miserable. And mm. I decided I'd read through the book of Job during that time. As one does. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, you know, I think there's a part of me that felt a certain kind of affinity because I felt like sure. I was this righteous person doing this service. Uh, and, um, and yet I was suffering. And, it, and, it, and when I read the book, I was just shocked by what I found there because it's, when you actually sit down and read it, because what we often hear about Job, you know, the patience of Job and everything, hmm. we, is really Job 1 and 2, and then maybe right. this passage that we're looking at today. But in the middle of the book, there's a lot of stuff that you just would not expect to be biblically endorsed responses to suffering, right? The <laughs> yeah. way that, that Job talks to God, and even the way that God responds to Job is just really not what you would expect. Uh, and I was fascinated by that. It, it just raised all of these questions for me. And the answers that the book gave were not at all what I expected. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's where my fascination with the book, my love for this book began. And I really haven't dropped it since. Though I can't say that I've answered 
those questions that I had. In fact, the questions just kind of seem to multiply the further I dig into the book. Yeah, that, that seems to happen with most books, though. <laughs> we, it's true, yeah. The more we dig, the more we find there is to dig. Yeah. 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 Well, we're so excited to have you with us on the podcast, and and we've knocked on the right door for this, it sounds like. So yeah. uh, uh, maybe we could start out by just having you read the lectionary passage for us. Could you do that, Will? Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. So I'm going to read from the uh, NRSV here. Then Job answered the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you declare to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now picking up at verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then there came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and they ate bread with him in his house. They showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, and he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a thousand yoke of oxen, and a thousand donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first Jemima, the second Kezia, and the third Karen Hapok. In all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and his children's children four generations. And Job died old and full of days. All right, now let's go back to the beginning. Oh my gosh, right. And read the whole thing through. <laughs> That's just what I was going to say. I mean, I think you're so right to pick up on this idea of like the two pieces of Job that we have in the lectionary very much paint the picture of this person who yeah, is the patience of Job kind of person, but everything in the middle just brings you to this point and it's like a left turn. So maybe that's where we could start too, is like describe to us what happens in the middle that makes this feel so jarring. A lot of people will be familiar with those first two chapters where we have this description of this righteous man, Job, uh, and then the Satan comes along and challenges that righteousness by saying, well, of course, Job is righteous because you've blessed him, God, in so many ways. But if you take those blessings away, I bet you uh, he will curse you to your face. And God agrees to this wager, which is in itself a rather strange thing. But OK, yeah. that's, you know, that's the premise of the story that we're going to work <laughs> with here. And so the Satan is allowed to take everything from Job and he loses all of his possessions and his an original 10 children. And then passes the test, right? And that's where we get the patience of Job. You know, the Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? Mm -hmm. Then we get the second test where the Satan says, okay, fine, but you didn't let me actually go after his person. And so the Lord once again agrees and Job is afflicted with these boils and sores all over his body. And again says to his wife, shall we accept good from the Lord and not bad? So that's what we're familiar with. But then mm -hmm. that left turn you mentioned, Rachel, right? Is chapter three, this pious Job suddenly lets out with this chapter-long curse, not of God, and I think that's probably significant, but of the day of his birth, in which not only does he say, I wish that that day had never existed, but he actually is kind of tearing at creation itself 
And mm. in a way arguing, I wish creation itself did not exist because of what I have faced. That leads to the three friends who had come to comfort Job, as we're told in chapter 2, verse 11, uh, actually turning on Job. At first, they're respectful. You're like, well, but, you know, Job, you've been a good guy in the past. You've helped other people, and now you've faced suffering. It doesn't seem like you're reacting so great to it. Uh, but over the course of their debate, as Job refuses to repent, to, to appeal to God, but, well, he does appeal to God, but he refuses to say, yeah, I'm, I must have done something wrong. He's, he holds fast to his integrity. That leads to the friends increasingly turning on Job, but Job increasingly turning on God and saying, hey, God, the situation I'm in here is completely unjust. I don't see how you could allow this to happen and still be a just God. So we get that back and forth for three cycles where everybody gets a turn uh, to say their, their piece. And then this other guy, Elihu, comes in after Job and the friends clearly aren't able to come to any kind of uh, satisfying conclusion. Elihu comes in, doesn't really contribute a lot uh, to the debate. Um, and finally, God rolls in in a, a whirlwind and speaks to Job. So we get this interaction where God himself is addressing Job, but he doesn't ever address Job particularly or his suffering explicitly. Instead, he talks about the wonders of his creation. And that's what leads up to what we just read, which is Job's response after God's response to Job and the friends mm -hmm. arguing with one another about Job's situation, his mm -hmm. experience of unjust suffering. Do you have a theory about what changes Job's mind? I mean, is, does God just essentially bulldoze Job? Mm -hmm. Or yeah. what, what happens there between them? I think to understand the interaction between Job and God, you have to understand 42 verse 6 properly. And unfortunately, I don't think the translators of the NRSV or most English translations have done that. Chapter 42 verse 6, the NRSV translation says, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So the, the crucial word there is repent. Uh, the Hebrew word underneath that is nacham. Now, that word can be translated repent, and that's within its broader semantic range of possible meanings. But it appears several other times in the book of Job, and every other time it appears, it's better translated comfort. Mm. Uh, so I already mentioned how in chapter 2, verse 11, this is the first time it appears, uh, Job's friends have come with the purpose of comforting Job, of nachaming Job. That's that's their job. Uh, uh, and it appears several other times mm -hmm, in the debate mm -hmm. between Job and the friends. The most significant one is chapter 16, verse 2, where Job turns on the friends and says, miserable comforters, miserable <laughs> nachamers, are you all, right? You're not doing the job that you came to do to comfort me well. And so when we get to God's speeches, and then Job's response, the use of that word nacham, again, is really significant. What I think is going on here, and this is an increasingly popular view of how to read the book now. Um, you mentioned my podcast, we're going through Job now, and every scholar that we asked about how you would understand this all said, don't understand it as repent, instead understand it some, in some form of comfort or to be consoled. Um, mm -hmm. So the way that I see it is what God is actually doing in the divine speeches is Comforting Job, or maybe causing him to be consoled in the midst of his suffering might be, it's a little bit more technical. When we think of the word comfort, we think of 
kind of um, good emotional feelings. Mm -hmm. But what's really going on here is a process of Job mourning. He, he takes mm -hmm. on these mourning rituals uh, in chapters one and two after he faces this suffering. So he begins that process of mourning. The friends come, they sit Shiva with him, and they sit for seven days in, in silence with him. But the goal is that the friends are supposed to help him complete that mourning ritual by putting off the mourning garb, the mourning behavior, and instead entering back into society again. But he refuses, right? He refuses to move back into society because he doesn't think that his situation has been appropriately addressed. So what God does in the divine speech is, is helps Job move back into society to put aside the mourning ritual. And that's what I think in 42 verse six at the beginning, therefore I despise. The word myself is not in the Hebrew. There's no mm -hmm. object yeah. to that verb. What he's actually saying is, therefore I reject or put off. And the implicit, I think the object we should understand is the, the mourning ritual. And I am consoled or I am comforted. Interesting. So then it makes perfect sense. What we read here in the rest of chapter 42, he enters back into society, right? He's, he's no longer mourning. He's now back into, he's now part of society in a functional way once again. So he has been comforted. Now that doesn't answer really the question that you're getting at here though of, well, how exactly do the divine speeches accomplish this? Yeah. How exactly yeah. do they, do Are they, they get? Yes, exactly. <laughs> And, and I mean, that's a, a huge conversation, which yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd love to have, but I think it's helpful if we read back over them with that idea in mind that whatever they're doing, their goal is not, I don't think, to bulldoze Job, mm -hmm. even though some people read them that way. Their goal is to help Job move beyond his mourning. That's fascinating. Well, what I love so much about that idea is that Job will not just Job absolutely refuses to move back into society until he has received word from God. like, And I think that that's such a neat thing to allow people to say that you can wait until you feel adequately responded to by God. I mean, I think that's, you know, that's a fantastic sermon. Yeah, right yeah. And, and what, what uh, Job's looking for the whole time, right, is an audience, right? Is to have yeah. an audience with God. And so it's not so much the reasons and rationale for his suffering that is his greatest longing, but God's self. And when he gets Great God's point. self, that's enough for him. Now, I, how yeah. does he say yes. it? Now my eyes have seen you. And so, hey, I'm done. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Uh, you're both right on point there. And But the one thing I would add, though, uh, Rachel, is he's not just waiting until he gets a word from God. He is going after God yeah, to get absolutely. that word, right? Sure. So he is sure. arguing with God. He is yeah. lamenting. He's complaining. He's even accusing. And that all yeah. seems to be... And this is what, now if we move into the part that the lectionary leaves out of the reading yeah. passage <laughs> here, um, that all seems to be within the world of the book approved of the way that Job speaks. Uh, so if you want me to read uh, verses seven to nine, which are left out. Yeah, let's, here, let's uh, toss uh, them in. Says, yeah. So it says, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Tamanite. So that's the leader of the three friends. My wrath is kindled against you, so against the friends, and against your two friends, for you, the friends, have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And then mm -hmm. God goes on to say that the friends have to offer this very expensive sacrifice of seven bulls and seven rams uh, as a kind of repentance for their speaking what is wrong about uh, God. Uh, so it's 
Um, absolutely surprising feature, one of many surprising features of this book, that at the end, even after Job has talked to God the way that he has, and the friends have been telling him, hey, Job, chill out. This is not the way that you should interact with God. This is not how you and talk they, in church, Job. Exactly. Um, that God has actually approves of Job's speech and not the friend's speech. Uh, it's shocking. Uh, and one of the big conundrums of the book, but the way that I see that working uh, is that this kind of wrestling with God, this kind of taking our suffering directly to God and asking God, how can this possibly fit with your justice? Uh, that is approved here. That God actually sees this as a way of expressing faith in the midst of suffering. Amen. Thanks everyone for listening Thanks. to first reading. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think we got our sermon. Table, what, 10 minutes in? <laughs> Uh, yeah. No, that's that's wonderful. I think that that's consistent with the tradition we see across the Bible. Oh, I mean, think about the definition give, given to Israel, the name of the people of God, right? Mm. Wrestles mm. with God in Genesis 32. So Job is just living out that tradition, perhaps in the most vehement and radical way that we encounter uh, in the Hebrew Bible, but it's not of a different type altogether. It's, it's just that approach pushed all the way to the limits. Mm -hmm. And it's in a, it's in alignment with like the, the big bulk of lament Psalms as well, right? Like that's part of that mm -hmm. tradition right. as well. One of the things that I wonder about along these lines, um, just given the, the, the way that we resonate with that theme in Job, what, what do we know about when this book came about and for what type of audience? Do, do we have any idea or is it just one of those great mysteries? <laughs> like, where did this book come from? Yeah, so one of my favorite quotes in all of biblical scholarship is from David Kleins, who is as much of an expert on Job as anyone can possibly be. He's written a three-volume commentary in the Word Biblical Commentary series. And this is what Kleins says of, in response to that question, Tim. He says, of Job's author or date of composition, I frankly know nothing. And my <laughs> he goes on, and my speculations are not likely to be worth more than the many guesses that already exist. Uh, so there you go. Um, we really don't know when Job was written or the, the context in which it was written. Uh, in recent scholarship, so the traditional view, which you may encounter in your churches, is that Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible. And that probably comes from the fact that it does seem to be set early in Israel's history. Uh, well, it's not even in Israel's history, right, it's right. in a second, but it's set in a, a time like what we encounter early in Israel's history with the patriarchs uh, and so forth. But of course, a text doesn't have to be written in the time it was set. And the general consensus now in biblical scholarship is that the book is probably actually one of the later books uh, in the Hebrew Bible, probably written after the exile. Uh, and there are a few arguments that are used, though I don't find any of them on their own super compelling. For me, the main reason I would see the book written later is because it appears to be quoting from, alluding to, engaging with a number of earlier texts uh, in the Hebrew Bible. So those texts would have had to exist before Job came along. As far as the setting goes, uh, we don't know where the land of Uz was. Uh, <laughs> so um, we don't know exactly where this place is, but 
Job is referred to as the greatest man of the East, which suggests that it was in the East somewhere. And since it's being referred to as the East, it means the book was actually probably written somewhere to the West mm. of the East, <laughs> uh, which is which would probably put it in Israel. So the book is probably written in Israel, but it's written about a foreigner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's another significant aspect of the book, that this foreign person seems to have a relationship with God. And even though that God is referred to with the general name God or Shaddai, um, almighty throughout the dialogue between Job and the friends, the covenant name Yahweh is used in these narrative sections at the beginning and the end. And when God appears and speaks to Job, which is within the poetry, that name is used as well. So um, I would push back a little bit on those people who say, well, this is wisdom literature. And so it's just kind of presenting universal ideas about God. There's certainly some of that there, but it also is being placed within a relationship with a specific God. uh, And that does inform, I think, the way that it talks about who God Mm -hmm. is. I know where Oz is. (laughs) Oh, you do? Well, great. (laughs) Solve this problem for me. It's somewhere over the rainbow. (laughs) (laughs) The wonderful wizard. (laughs) Yeah. Uh. Some people, I've seen scholars make that comparison to try and argue that this is, you know, should be treated as a folk tale. So we get that Oz-Oz connection. Uh Yeah. So you're on to something. (laughs) Well, I mean, that kind of brings us then nicely to the ending, which is is such a Disney-fied ending in some <laughs> ways of a book that has been anything but Disney. I'm I'm often thinking theologically at this point, especially in a practical way, of people going through great trauma or going through great suffering and looking at this and saying, all I have to do is not speak of things I do not understand, and God will fix it in the end and make it a happy ending. So there's kind of a dual question there of both how did 10 to 17 fit with the rest of the book and then just the implications of that. How do we how do we sort of roll with or maybe even turn aside the implications of where that can lead? Yeah, that's a great question. One thing is that one of the reasons people don't like the ending is they think that the book of Job is about rejecting what's called the doctrine of retribution, right? So this is an idea that we encounter other places in the Hebrew Bible that if you do good, then you'll get good, right? You'll get blessed. But if you do wickedness, then you will be cursed. You'll encounter suffering. Uh, And so people frequently read the book of Job as a rejection of that doctrine because, of course, it doesn't quite work that way with Job. Job is righteous, mm-hmm. uh, and yet he suffers. Bad things happen to good people. Yeah, right. Exactly. But in fact, I think that the book is reinforcing the doctrine of retribution, but leading us to reinterpret how it actually works in our lives. So mm. we, we, can't, we can't take someone who's suffering and assume that that suffering is the result of something that they've done wrong. Um, and, you know, this is a thing that Jesus says to his disciples in John 9 when they see the, the blind man and, and the disciples say, yeah. so who sinned, this man or his parents? Jesus says neither. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's blind so that um, it's some, like the glory of God may be mm-hmm, seen mm-hmm. or something to that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it is trying to disabuse us of that notion that we can make these kind of direct equivalences. But I don't think the book works if you don't still have some kind of doctrine of retribution because Job's argument with God depends on a belief that if God can be convinced of the just thing to do, God will do the just thing, right? So the doctrine of retribution, if he doesn't have that, he has no leg to stand on in his argument with God. He needs the doctrine of retribution to be true in some sense. But what 
The other way that the book nuances our understanding of that is that not only can a good person suffer, but a good person could suffer for a very long time before things are made right again. Mm. And so this is where we get chapter after chapter after chapter of Job wrestling with God in the midst of his suffering. But it's appropriate that in the end, God does make everything right. Uh, mm. Because that reinforces the fact that we can have faith, <laughs> that things will work out in the end. It may not work out soon. Uh, and, you know, a Christian reading of this text would say it may not even work out in this lifetime, but we can trust that eventually it will. The other question that you asked, Rachel, was, well, can people might be tempted to think, well, there's just this like these techniques that the book teaches us that we can avoid suffering if we just yeah. do the right things. Uh, and I, <laughs> I do think that there are things that we can learn that we can practice when we face suffering from this book. And one of those things we've talked about a couple of times, which is bringing that suffering directly to God. And yes, honesty is, does seem to be a good thing, but um, just thinking, oh, I can do these particular religious practices and that's going to protect me from suffering. That in fact is what the friends are trying to get Job to do all along. <laughs> They're trying to say, Job, just confess your sin. It doesn't matter if you don't think you've actually sinned. Just confess some kind of sin, and that's the religious practice. It works. You just apply the practice, and you'll be fine. Yeah. Um, and Job refuses that because he doesn't see that as a true expression of faith in who God is. That's treating God as a divine slot machine instead of as the just and good God that Job believes him to be. Uh, so in that sense, the book would push hard against people who think, oh, it's just do the right religious practices. And that's how we protect ourselves from suffering. Well, I so I don't know quite how we're going to sum up preaching points here <laughs> because it feels like we've got a lot. And we've also we've already kind of touched on both preaching angles mm -hmm, and preaching mm -hmm. pitfalls. But are there are there specific things you would you would in either of you counsel preachers to avoid in particular? So I think you made a great point, Rachel, about you wouldn't want to preach this passage as how to double your income. Because <laughs> 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 Job gets back twice as much as he lost. So that, that's not what this is about. Um, and um, I think we do have to be careful also with Job in that I think we can take lessons from Job for our lives, but there is a sense in which he's being set up for us at the beginning of a book of the book as not like us. Right? He is greater than everyone else in the East. He is as righteous as a person can be. So when we face suffering, we may emulate some of the things that he does, but we shouldn't expect that our experience will be exactly the same as Job. Well, we, sure, we certainly hope that uh, we won't go through the suffering that he goes through. Um, but you know, we have to be careful about thinking that everything is going to work out in the end precisely the way that it does for Job, because that sets people up for some significant disappointment uh, if they do have to endure without seeing this kind of blessing yeah. for a long time or maybe their whole lives. So you, you would have to push, point them beyond uh, that kind of material expectation in their lives. Yeah, and, and I'd recommend, uh, just to tag on to that, I would recommend preachers, like mm -hmm. as you map out your sermon outline or, or uh, transcript or however you, however you prepare your sermons, maybe before you preach this, just run back through it and make sure that that's not inadvertently in your yeah. rhetoric that yeah. people would hear what you have to say and think, well, shoot, you know, I, I things should be better for me if, if I had only mm -hmm. done things this way or that way, or it's supposed to work out in the end in a certain way. 
yeah, we don't want to lead people to, to get that impression from what we talk about mm-hmm. with Job's experience. Another thing that we, we haven't talked about, but um, I, I think is worth mentioning is, so verse 15, the daughters get an inheritance along with the brothers. Yeah. Uh, and not only that, but, and I'm stealing this from Carol Newsom again, but the names that the daughters are given are all things related to beauty. Uh, like Karen Hupok is um, eyeshadow. Uh, and so the fact that Job, after his suffering, is able to see beauty again, and so that's mm-hmm. where those names are significant, that is an opportunity for great hope as people emerge from suffering. I mean, we've faced a situation yeah. of great suffering over the last 18 months or so um, as a nation. And so this epilogue here gives us hope that we can see beauty again. And, mm. and the fact that Job is re-entering into society, so his friends come around him. I mean, I don't know about you all, but for me, being around people is now so much more significant than it was yeah. before because we've had that time of isolation. And in some cases, even now, it's still more rare than it used to be to be in a room with others. Yeah. Uh, and, and suffering has that effect on us, even when it's not enforced by you know, CDC guidelines. <laughs> suffering does tend to isolate us from other people. Uh, and so the book of Job is really, I mean, Job complains about that a lot during the dialogue. Yeah. So the hope that this passage presents for us of a time of re-entering into community, re-entering into a relationship with God, which is another thing that's happening in Job's response to God when we felt so alone and so isolated. And then to see beauty in the world again. Uh, it's just a, such a rich picture of hope that I hope that people would be able to offer to their congregations. And that would be a really t- a really timely yeah. use of this text in our, in our moment. Yeah. Yeah. Rachel, are there other sort of preaching angles that you were thinking of with respect to this text? One of the things that opened up for me today was this idea, um, first of all, of not despising and repenting, but rejecting and comforting. That retranslation of verse six that you led us through, Will, I think that's so helpful, especially because um, as um, as a woman, what I often hear from other women um, is a, a sense of despising themselves for having a hard time in suffering. Mm. That if they were just stronger, or and I'm sure this is for men as well, but this is just, I'm thinking of my experience as a woman. Um, if they were just stronger or just more trusting or just more anything, it wouldn't feel quite so hard and they'd be able to bear it or endure it better. And I think when we have these these two texts from Job in the lectionary that are translated the way they are, it lends themselves to that sort of an understanding or self-experience of one's own suffering. And I I think the way that, that you talked about that, that this is not at all Job despising his own suffering or repenting of his suffering, but it's him being ready to leave his suffering, that he has completed the grieving cycle is something totally different. Um, And linked to that, the idea that the only thing that allows Job to complete his grieving cycle is demanding a word from God, both a word and an experience, and, and refusing to sort of unauthentically give up the suffering or the experience of suffering until it has had that completion to it. There's sort of an actual self-acceptance with this, mm-hmm. which this translation leads us away from. But I, what I think your reinterpretation of that leads us to is that it is it is sort of a, a very real self-acceptance of one's suffering 
um, that eventually leads one out of that uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think through COVID, through just general life experience, you know, whatever it might be. And I think that that's a powerful sermon too for, for communities that are not white, that no, this is not, you are not called to endure suffering, but that you are actually called to be honest about your experience of it with God and demand that if God is just, as God purports to be, then we should be seeing different things here. So I think that that's a really powerful point that could preach to, to multiple audiences as well. Yeah, the book encourages us to call God to be just in the situations of suffering that we encounter yeah. in the world. So it's like other places in the Hebrew Bible, the prophets, the lament psalms, right? We are given a kind of responsibility of mm -hmm. calling God to be just in this world. And the, the kind of relational nature that this book shows us of the way that Job's arguments with God have an effect and lead God to respond. You know, I sometimes ask students, if Job hadn't complained, if he had just stuck with the argument from chapter two, his response from chapter two, would he still be on the ash heap? Mm -hmm. We don't know. The, I mean, the book doesn't answer that question for us. But what it does tell us is his crying out to God does lead eventually to God responding and him moving off of that ash heap. So it does at mm -hmm. least endorse that. The other side, Rachel, you make a great point about the translation repent of 42.6, it can lead people when they face suffering to look for what they need to repent of, right? Yeah. And, and so it just adds to their suffering. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Clearly, right. I've done something wrong that's put me in this terrible state. So they use the friend's interpretation of Job on their own lives, and mm -hmm. they think, well, all I got to do is find the, the right thing to repent of, and then mm -hmm. I'll get to experience all the blessing of 42.10-17. Yeah. to 17. Mm -hmm. Tim, how about you? What are you thinking on? Oh, well, I I think one of the things I love about the book of Job is that it um, it doesn't just deal with the kind of suffering that comes as, like we're talking about, natural consequences for things that we've done wrong, but it, it really drills down into the experience of suffering where it's confusing. We don't understand why it's mm -hmm. happening. And I, I come at those experiences like wanting answers. Why is this happening? Wanting, to, wanting it to somehow make sense. And mm -hmm. I, I feel like the message uh, in this concluding part of the book and our conversation today is kind of reinforced to me that um, getting, getting answers to the why is not always the most important thing. The, the mm -hmm. thing that made the difference for Job wasn't getting a rationale for why his suffering. I mean, God didn't even tell him, well, you know, I, I had this I had this bet with Satan. Bet. <laughs> like right. that's just, that's just like from the narrator to the reader, Job doesn't get that. All Job gets is an experience of God, God's self. And when Job has that experience, that's enough. That's enough to move him forward mm -hmm. to take the next steps toward healing and restoration. And I feel like that for me is the seed of a sermon that in the midst mm -hmm. of inexplicable suffering, what we need most is not the answers to why, but to experience the reality of God in the middle of it, and that that can be the thing that moves us on the path toward healing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know what? That feels like a great spot to wrap up for this week. Dr. Will Kynes, what a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for being our guest. It was a pleasure to be with you. Keep up the good work. Thank you. You as well. 
And friends, you keep up the good work too. If you liked what you heard this week, there's plenty more over at our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the podcast there or wherever you listen. We also post each episode on Facebook, which gives you an easy way to share your favorite episode with family, Grandpa Tom, and Preaching Networks. If you found First Reading helpful, please do take a minute to spread the word. Our thanks goes to Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University for a grant that helps us sustain the podcast. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for the music behind the reading. And thanks to you for listening. Until next time, I'm Dr. Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Have a great week.